Hello, welcome everyone. This is In Conversations with Hannah. I'm Hannah Weisberg. I'm editor of thejewishwoman.org. And this is again In Conversations with Hannah. We have an incredible guest here with us today, Devori Kreiman, who is joining us to tell us her incredible story. Devori, you want to tell us a little about yourself? Hi, thank you. It's nice to be here. Um, where to start? My husband and I were married, I think now it's 36 years, and we had our first three children under three years. By my Yossi's upshurn, we already had our third child, and I was pregnant with my fourth when Yossi was four. And my fourth child was born with uh, just an inexplainable disorder that the doctors really had no name for. They'd never seen it before. He was a child. He looked perfectly normal, but he was just weak. And we went through a lot of testing. We went to the Rebbe for Bracha. And the Rebbe actually said, I'll have a healthy child in a set time and in the right time. And we understood that this wasn't the set time and this wasn't the healthy child. And the doctors told us that it's something that they, they could only call it failure to thrive, which is a very general term. It just means baby's not doing what the baby needs to do. Um, and he died when he was a few months old. And they said, you don't have to worry about other children. It happens sometimes, a fluke. So we had another baby. And it happened again. And that's when we started to get into the whole world of heredity, uh, which people usually so how, how many How many children did you have at the point? You said you had your oldest. Three. three healthy. Three healthy children. And then, yeah. And then our fourth and fifth were sick. And so at this point, the research picked up and we learned that we're dealing with an energy disorder, that the babies can't manufacture energy, and that it is hereditary, that we have a 25% chance in every pregnancy for a sick child and a 75% chance for a healthy child. Mm -hmm. which is good odds. The problem right, is right. So the babies were not 25% sick. If they were sick, they were 100% sick. Um, right. This baby died when she was a few months old also. And we had the bracha, the rabbi. We had a healthy child in between. Her name is Bracha, 27 years old, Kanan Hara. Um, and then the research advanced and we had another child, but we came much further, the third one, the third sick child, but couldn't. And then we spoke to a lot of Rabbanim and a lot of doctors because we really needed to get permission um, to have more children. And they said one, one last baby because the risk is so high and what it does to the family. We were so sure that the one last baby would be healthy, but that was the fourth of our sick children. And this was over a period of 10 years. I tell it quickly, but there was a lot, a lot of research, a lot of looking into it, also trying to make sure that our healthy children were healthy and could marry safely. Sure. Um, yes, they could and have healthy children because the odds are so rare. It's a sheared mutation with my husband and me and a very unusual mutation. So that's so, so you lost four children over the pros over the time period of, of 10 years. Yeah. With one how healthy did, in between. With one healthy in between. And what like how did that how what effect did that have on you? So you know what happens with, with grief or with any sadness is that everything else always comes up. So I was very young and I was 24, and I had three very active little children and a very sick child, and not a whole lot of tools. So I kind of learned on the job, you know, you get thrown in the water. Sure. Um, yeah, I learned a lot about what matters to me. I really had to struggle my way through it. And it, also, it wasn't that we knew from the beginning what we were dealing with. We thought we had this one sick child. And after he died, I wrote this letter, which actually ended up getting published. I sent it to one of the Rabbanim to check and he forwarded it. And it was explaining to the staff, we called him Baby Boy Kreiman because we hadn't had the bris yet. After the bris, we named him. And I told them we named him Nisanel because Hashem had given. I was explaining 
how we saw it as, as neshama. And I had this attitude of this was a difficult Nisayan, but we learned from it. Now we're going to put it behind us, wrap it up and move on. It was a difficult so, test. Nisayan means test and you just, yes. okay. And that's how you, you looked at it and you moved on. So there was some of that. I mean, I'm cleaning it up a little bit and putting a bow. You know, it was gritty. It was hard. It was messy. And that's the part that comes up with, with illness and with uncertainty. You know, it was like every time I went to the hospital, the doctors would come up with another bit of bad news. The baby deteriorated very slowly. He looked perfectly normal at birth. And then gradually, as his enzyme ran out, more and more things would stop functioning. So I would come to the hospital and the doctor would meet us and say, oh, today your lung collapsed or oh, today. And I, it came to a point where every time I walked in, I just, when I saw the doctor, I wanted to just like run. You know? Imagine, um, wow. Yeah. So we had no choice. You had to sit at the big people table, you know? Um, and then you had, I mean, your book is about, your book, by the way, is an incredible book. Javari wrote a book called Even If I'm Not, and it's, about her story, about her story with the death of her four children, how she buried her four children, and then how her oldest son, Yassi, um, passed away. He, was, he passed away drowning um, when he was 23 years old, six weeks before his engagement. Six weeks before his wedding, yeah. When he was engaged, sorry, six weeks before his, his wedding when he was engaged. Tell us a little about that. So... I started with the babies only because it's just always all the old stuff always comes up. And when we heard that, yes, my husband called me that Yossi was in an accident. And I, I say this so many times and it's still something I, it's so hard for me to even now believe because the whole way to the hospital, I was holding my tehillim and I couldn't open it. My husband's on the phone with the Hefe Kadisha. Yossi's already gone. And I'm still saying, I'm bargaining with Hashem and I'm saying, this is not the babies. This is Yossi. Because for so many years, we worked so hard. Because after we found out that we have an issue with heredity, I really had to struggle with simcha, with accepting what I had. And after I lost that last baby, I was very young. I was in my 30s. And I knew that I wouldn't have any more children. And at the same time, I was so profoundly grateful for the children that I did have. Loss does that. It sharpens that. So I had worked really, really hard to not be all about, you know, this woman who lost half her children. And I'd really come to this place where there were the four babies who died. There were the four children who lived. They're separate and worked hard with my husband. We were not this Nebuchadnezzar family. We did not have a home that was shadowed by illness and death. My kids talk about a happy childhood. And here, you know, we're on the way to the hospital. And I just keep saying to Hashem, this is not the babies. This is Yossi, meaning the babies were sick and they died. Yossi is from the four healthy ones. They live. They live. So... I really had to work very hard on just accepting that it had happened, believing. Accepting is a big word, and I'm still working on that, but believing even that something could happen to one of my healthy children. Right. It was also so sudden. You, like, yes, he went scuba diving. Yeah. And you, you write in the book how he said he'll be home to make the challenge, right? Because he used to make yeah. the challenge really well. And you're like waiting for him to come back, and you just call him, and he's, it goes straight to his answering machine asking him like, are you coming or should I do it myself? And then that was it. That was the last, you know, that was the last that you conversation that you were supposed to have with him. Exactly. And that yeah. suddenness, I guess, is what puts, puts one in shock. Yeah. Yeah. I speak to a lot of people who lose children. It's become people call when they lose babies, people call, you know, for multiple loss, because unfortunately I know what it is to lose a child to illness and to sudden death. 
And later, it doesn't matter as much. Like years later, for every bereaved parent, it's about making sure the child is remembered. We're like the flag bearers telling the world, this and this person existed because they'll never have children or even, you know, whatever it is, like the parents are the ones making sure the world remembers. But in the beginning, it does make a real difference because when it's a sudden death, there's so much, of a, there's like a strong sense of shock that it actually happened. And I grappled with that a lot. It's a different level of trauma. You know, with the babies, I would, I would say goodbye to them pretty much every time I left. It was still a shock. Death is always shocking. Like, we know here, we know, we know in our heads, you know, people die. But we don't quite believe it. Well, I guess there's also all those missed, I mean, you wrote about how you were home that last Shabbos with him. Even though you weren't supposed to be, you were supposed to go to a convention. Yeah. You know, I, I guess it's also just that those last, like, you can never say goodbye. It's never a goodbye that you are able to you can't say your last words, you know, at least with the babies, I guess you had that ability of saying goodbye and holding them for the last time here. There's wow. Um, I never I knew it would be the last time with the babies, but every time I left, I knew they were dying. Right. Except right. For the first one, I was a little bit surprised that he died that quickly. It was a few months, but, but the other ones already we knew. And yeah, we, I, I was sure to like, wish like to speak to their neshamas. Yossi also was 23. It's, it's a different experience. You know, I talk about it by the babies. I would have traded babies. And I, I, right. I, I know it's not, it's, it's ridiculous to say, but the truth is the baby was a baby and I, I would have adopted someone's baby. I just wanted to fill my arms. Right. 23 year old son. There's so yeah. many experiences, so many memories, so many dreams. Yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you write in the book a lot about that first year, how everything was a first. And as I was reading it, I got this like overwhelming feeling of just so much intense grief, so much intense hopelessness, just this feeling of not being able to continue. And I, I know people feel that way, you know, whether it be to this extreme losing a child or in another situation where a person just feels a tremendous amount of grief or a tremendous amount of frustration or just this feeling like I just can't go on after this happened to me, whether it be a disappointment or all of us in our own lives have felt it at some point, this intense bereavement over something. Um, when a person feels that way, what is there that we can do to just keep moving on? It's a big question and a very yeah. good um, You know, everybody's a little different and the book is very raw. And I think that the value in that is that I didn't stay there. I think that if I still sounded that way now, it would be the saddest book in the world and no one should read it. Right. Um, right. Of being so open about the extent of the despair and of being so open about how afraid I was, how angry, a lot of anger there. Um, is that I found that you don't have to stay there. And I think the best answer is slowly and from the inside. Like we, have, we have neshama powers. Sometimes they get blocked if we're really angry or jealous or just too wounded or too scared or ashamed or whatever the, the feelings are that can actually paralyze us. But slowly, slowly, if we have a reason, and by me it was my husband, my daughters, and then that I became a Bubby was a very big turning point there. Right. If we have a reason and we are allowed, if those that are close to us is a big part of it too, allow 
for the grief to unfold slowly if the person who's hurting, and it doesn't have to be, and it shouldn't be such a terrible loss, even from any disappointment, any setback. Sometimes we rush and we push the person forward because we think we know, you know, you need to get back. But if we allow the person to express what they need and to work through, unless there's an underlying clinical depression or major other obstacle, generally people do tap into the resources of the neshama and they do find their way towards help. I write about the help, the different therapy that I did, the creative therapy. But and, do you want to tell us about that? Like what, what therapies do you think? You go through a lot of different modalities and different kinds of therapies. Which did you find the most helpful for you? So it may have been the practitioner. I'm still not sure because I, I was lucky. Um, but I found for me the creative therapies worked because they went so much beyond talking. I would get so frustrated when I was talking because anyone who knows me knows I can talk a lot. But I couldn't put it into words. And I am a word person. And I couldn't express fully. I, I couldn't put my, my arms around it enough and say, this is where I am. And this is where I want to be. Um, I tried in the book to be as true to my diary, my journal as I was. And that's why there's fragments there too. So for me, the creative therapy, the EFT, which is tapping, was fantastic. Also because it works with affirmations. If you're only talking about the pain again and again and again, you're not getting anywhere, you're circling. Mm -hmm. And the affirmations slowly, gently nudged me forward because they came from me. The therapist what, suggested that I do what were those? What were those affirmations that? I went through quite a few, but for example, Neshamas never die, which we know. We'll never die, right? I needed to hear it, mm -hmm. or that Hashem does only good, or that I am worth saving, me, myself. You know, we, so we had about 10 of them and they were they were very important. Some of them were personal between me and my husband that I was working on um, because he was so good and I was so broken. And I wanted to reassure myself that I would be able to come back, you know, to, to some something of me. that It would be worth him hanging around for. Um, so that was very useful, the affirmations. But I wouldn't tell someone who just went through a loss to start making affirmations. I came to it later. I came to it gently. Uh, the bigger um therapy that the, the EFT was part of this and the affirmations are part of it. But the bigger part was the EMDR, which is the lights. And you look at the lights and the therapist does different things with numbers and with the fingers, like you follow, you kind of clear your head. Mm -hmm. And I was able to see Yossi in a lighter way because before that, every time I thought about Yossi from the time that we, you know, we got the news, it was just all dark. I kept visualizing him in the water and that was the only image. And I couldn't, I couldn't really access the fun, smart, kind, loving boy. Mm -hmm. And the EMDR gave me that. I also loved, loved, loved psychodrama, but that was only available in Israel. I only had a very short taste of it. I haven't ever found that to that quality again. Uh, I think it's a fantastic format. And again, that's my personality. Other people do well with just straight talking. You know, everybody's, it's very individual. And there's so many out there. Right. Well, you, you say that you're like, you're a talker. In the book, you write about your daughter, who you say was not a talker. In fact, she said to you, like, I don't talk. You know, I'm not like you who always talks. Is there different ways of doing a morning? Is there different ways of going through the morning? You know, what about someone who isn't such a talker? Yeah, so, you know, I, I write actually for Ami Magazine, and it just turns out a lot of my interviews are people who went for loss. I don't know how that is, but it just is. And just this week, I'm writing a story about a woman who lost a daughter and she opened up her home and started to invite people for Shabbos. And so I think that we do different things. There's different stages. I mean, there's the actual absorbing the grief and dealing with it 
finding a way to believe it happened and slowly work towards accepting that while every part of us is screaming, no, 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 at the same time, finding a way to live with it, to survive. And then there's what we do with the grief. Uh, I didn't set out to be an author or a speaker. The doors opened for me, but I did need to, to share and to talk. That's my personality. People do quiet things. They change something on a very personal level to stay connected. Um, I think everybody finds some way um, as part of the healing to give a tribute in a way. It doesn't have to be huge. In my case, it is the book. But I think that people tap into their own neshama resources and try to make it something, something positive from it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I speak to so many people and I hear all different things. I find it interesting that one of your affirmations that you just said is that um, the belief that everything that God does is good. How can you get to that stage? I mean, as you go through the book, you, you, you did not feel that way at the beginning, obviously. How does a person ever get to that point when they experience something like such a grief, like a child being taken from them at 23 years old, you know, right before his wedding? How can you ever say that that is something that is good that God has done to you? So there really are, there's two parts because we learn a lot in Hasidic philosophy. So we and, learn. And, yeah, and I found it also fascinating because you, you, you speak about how as a principal, you know, you were a principal in, the, in, a, in, a, in a good Jewish day school, uh, Chabad school, where you were teaching so many of these concepts about God being good, about all this faith. And yet, you know, when it comes to, to facing it on our own, it's, it's so much more difficult. So how does one, does that mean it wasn't real? How does one integrate this knowledge and, and really making it a part of ourselves when we're actually facing the tragedy that we're, that we're facing? Yeah, yeah. So that was the challenge because I, the, I was saying that there's the learning. The first step really is to learn, to understand soul and God and purpose in this world. But that's all in the head. And then what happens when we have to live it? You know, I mean, people talk about the ideas of parenting, let's say, and then you actually have to use the, t- the techniques and the tools. So I had the knowledge. I was lucky in that I had had the education and I was a teacher of Hasidic philosophy. So I knew the concepts. The problem was how to access it and make it real to the extent that it actually impacts how I feel and how I act. Um, and the name of the book is Even If I'm Not, because I write, you know, the scenario that Yossi was the one that he would love this so much. He named his own book when he was young. But the point is that it's there even if I'm not ready. And it's an ongoing struggle. I still have it now. I mean, you think practically people who, let's say they know what healthy foods we you know would do for the body. And then there's the actual change in, in the way that we eat. We know it. But do we do it? So I that is the crux of the book, grappling with these concepts that I know are true. God runs the world. There was never a doubt in my mind. And Yossi's life had purpose and we would survive and we would even find joy because you can't live a soulful life without joy. So I knew the concepts, but I grappled with living them in a way that it actually changed my behavior and my feeling. And it's ongoing. It's small bits. It's not any big transformation where suddenly you become this wow, spiritual person that's breathing and living godliness. It's more in every small moment. It's waking up in the morning and feeling like a victim because something triggers and then saying, I can still 
be pleasant to my husband, even if I'm hurting. I can still think about another human being, even though I'm feeling sorry for myself. We do it in very, very small bits. Hmm. That's wow. it. And yeah. so you got to the point where you can actually say that what did God did was good. I knew it all along. It's I could say it even then, but I couldn't feel, feel it. it or have it help me. And now... I think that I, I can feel it in a much deeper way. Yes. Wow. Wow. And, and as I'm reading through the book, you know, again, even if I'm not, I, I just felt like it was almost like it was a textbook, you know, on, on faith. It, it was almost like a textbook showing you it wasn't written as a textbook. It was written as a, as a book that was so engaging and so raw and so real. I couldn't put it down. I mean, once you start reading it, it just was, it was hard to put down, but I felt that it was almost like a textbook of how to practically access that faith that takes you from a normal place of what normal people feel and shows you how to get to the point where you can actually, you are where you're at today, where you're accepting what happened and you're, you're actually have this belief that this, that there was some good in, in, in what happened, which is an incredible an incredible journey to be able to, to see and to, to watch. There's only good in what happens. I think that when we talk about acceptance or we talk about faith, it doesn't mean that there isn't pain. Right. I have a very deep sense of trauma and of broken, um, especially when you go through loss after loss. Like when the babies were sick, it brought up every disappointment and setback from when I was a kid. And when Yossi died, I thought about the babies a lot. So it's there at any time there's any kind of setback, sometimes even something silly. Like I thought I would never worry about anything stupid again and something will happen. And I'm like, and yes, he died. And this also happened. So it's there, but in a very real way, the, the pain is there. When we talk about faith and joy, because joy is really, you can't have the faith without the joy. The joy is how you implement the faith. Right. And it doesn't mean that there isn't discomfort, sadness, um, but, but I grapple with it. I, I actually work through it. Anxiety is a big one. Um, people who go through trauma are always afraid. They, they don't feel that they can walk across the floor and it'll stay where it is. You know, everything, they know what, it, you know, everything can get pulled away in a moment. So I, I end up the concept of affirmations I use all the time, you know, not in some spiritual removed way that a typical person can't do just in self-talk. I remind myself. And so what, what are some affirmations that you use? Like on a regular basis now? God is in charge of the world. I think everybody needs to say that as much as we can. Right. Uh, God is close to me. I have seen it so many times. And every time I see it, sometimes in a wondrous way, and there's so many stories, it's like, wow. But we know, we know that God is right here. What I say a lot also is there's nothing but God. It's not like there's this big world and this big power that steps in and helps. Nothing in this world is real except God. And what I really try to tap into, because... I saw, it, I saw it in a dark way, so I try to do it in a lighter way, is soul journey. With my babies, this was even more clear than by Yossi, that we come to this world for a short time and we have work to do. And whatever happens to us, that's the material for our soul to do our work. So my babies needed very little. I needed more because I had to nurture them. And when I was talking about how I could switch the baby, that was a very flip and ridiculous way to go about it. because the truth is those babies are my babies and that was my journey to find a way to be a mother to a child that was dying it's a very different type of mothering my soul needed that work and we don't always get to see why but one of the affirmations that I find myself saying now all the time 
is this is the work that I'm here to do. Hmm. Wow. Wow. As I was reading, I kind of felt this feeling of, I, I, you know, seeing someone who's, who, who went through so much loss and worked her way through it. I kind of felt like I have no, um, there, there's no right to ever complain about anything in my life again. <laughs> you know, it's kind of this feeling like, you know, and at one point you said it, like, you know, a, a person should think what well, you, you thought, well, a week ago, yes, he was, was here. Yes. He was, was alive. Yeah. That was wonderful. I didn't appreciate the fact that he was just alive and that was, that was everything, you know, nothing else should bother me. And is that what a person should feel though? Reading the book, should we feel this? I have no right to complain about anything and look at the loss that someone has suffered and what they've gone through. Or is it normal for people to feel that complaining and that entitlement that we all feel? I don't think that, that people shouldn't feel the pain that they have. I always say if someone has a broken toe, so someone else might have a broken foot, but pain is pain. And we also, we can't measure the capacity of how much someone is hurting. You know, my love for Yossi now is as strong as the pain of losing him. And I feel like we can't ever measure how much someone is suffering from a bad marriage, from loneliness. Loneliness is a big one. I speak to people, it comes up a lot, from childhood hurts, from personality issues, from anxiety disorders, from mental health challenges. I mean, how do we know or measure the loss of this versus that? I think everybody has to work through their own pain. But I did learn something important. I think it was by the Schleschen, by the 30 days after Yossi. And I remember thinking a month ago, I had a son and I was, I was cooking and I wasn't dancing around the kitchen joyously that I have a son. Right. Um, but I'll tell you what changed. I dance joyously with my grandchildren. I am not a sad person. I know deep sadness and I, more I carry a sense of trauma and broken. Um, I have to work on that constantly. It's, I haven't arrived at this place of perfect faith and it doesn't work like that. I, it's ongoing for all of us because life brings stuff um, but I am just very grateful and I take the time to take joy. I love being a grandma. I find that I appreciate my husband on a much deeper level than I did before. I mean, you read that book, it's basically, you know, he put up with me. Um, <laughs> I appreciate my own health. I appreciate another day. You know, I wake up in the morning, we say Moda'ani and I don't want to sound again, like out there and like, oh, in the spiritual plane, I'm very real. And I get frustrated and overwhelmed like everybody else about even small things. But I do start the day with an awareness that my soul in this body has another day, another chance. And I take joy in, in my children and my grandchildren, a very deep, deep joy. Wow. Yeah. So you, you titled it, Even If I'm Not. Do you want to explain that? Yeah. So Yossi was this witty kind of kid. He was a smart boy with a great sense of humor. And by the way, that's the saving grace of the book is that there's funny bits. It's not that I'm funny. There's a lot of funny bits, even yeah. for you, like the Thank way that you explain yes. things. It was really, yes. Because my husband is funny and <laughs> Yossi was funny. And I'm so grateful because the book would be so heavy. You know, and I wasn't very funny at that point, but, but Yossi and my husband and I quoted them and then the book, that's funny. People laugh. But even if I'm not, when Yossi was a little boy, I was five or six, he was very young, and I was rushing in the morning to get to work and getting everybody ready, and I just yelled out over my shoulder, there's bagels on the counter if you're hungry. And he said, even if I'm not. 
And I said, what? And he said, he loved to do this. You said there's bagels on the counter if I'm hungry, but they're not on the counter if I'm hungry. The bagels are on the counter even if I'm not hungry. And then, you know, that became one of Yossi's sayings, even if I'm not, which means it's there anyway. And I remember like I went shopping and the salesperson said, hi, my name is Anna if you need anything. And right away I'm thinking, your name is not Anna if I need anything. Your name is Anna. So, but the point was, it's there even if I'm not, whether you want it or not. And I remember... I write about it in the book. There was a Shabbos, my first Shabbos that I actually cooked in my own house again after Yossi, because Yossi died right before Shabbos, and Shabbos was just so, so hard to get through. And here my sister came, I made Shabbos, and I remember thinking about, even if I'm not, that the resources that we need, the wisdom, the comfort, the answers, they're in the books, they're within our own soul, there are people you can talk to. It's not that you can't access what you need to know in order to feel stronger. It's all there. It's all ready. Mm-hmm. even if I'm not. Wow. Interesting. You, you write about how you went to different people, to different people who had suffered a lot of loss. Yeah. Um, you write about um, Sherry Mandel. You write about the Haymans. You write about um, Cyril Deitch. Yes. What did these women offer you from their perspective of loss that you learned from and that you gained from? So each of them something else. I was at different, a little bit different stages. It was in the first year. But the first thing, very simple, I saw that it's survivable. When a very big loss happens, we, I couldn't imagine that I would survive. I really didn't think that I would stay around. It was just felt so big. Cyril Dyche taught me that you can still look beautiful. I describe it in the book. I showed up looking. I think I was in the shirt. I'd slept in. I looked the part. If you want to know what does a bereaved mom look like who lost five children and gave up, oh boy, that was me. And Cyril looked so put together. Um, just her way of handling also multiple loss. She's just so gracious and just so the, just the, everything about her gave me hope because I thought. Well, if if that's what it looks like, I can at least, you know, there's a chance. Um, the Heymans were probably the strongest influence for me. Schiffer Heyman passed away recently. Um, they, they lost their only child and their, their daughter was pregnant with their first grandchild. And the way that they spoke about Hashem, I was awed. And they were 10 years ahead. And that was also very inspiring to me that they survived 10 years. And again, gracious because mm-hmm. I remember in the book, I kept waiting for them to say to me, well, at least you have three daughters. We don't even have that. And they never said it, which is mm-hmm. why I said it. I mean, they were so welcoming and so spiritual, but very real. Which is what I'm trying for in the book, too. Because when I speak to people, they'll hear a podcast that I do now or a talk. And it's about trusting in God. And they'll say, well, yeah, that's you. You're, you're raised religious and you're all, you're all spiritual and you're in a different plane. But if you read the book and you see me on the floor and you see me you know, counting how many children people have or binging at night, you know, no, I wasn't spiritual. I was very angry and very much, you know, just in the grips of the sadness. I felt very sorry for myself. There was nothing spiritual or gracious. Right. Um, I call it inelegant, which is a nice way of saying just <laughs> like this. So that was, so the Haymans showed me um, just how you can really still stay connected, but they were very real and relatable. And I just I gained so much from them. And Sherry Mandel actually was the one that opened up the door to this concept of when something happens to you, you can use it. Uh, she wrote a book, which I had actually read before Yossi mm-hmm. died. And then I read it again after with a very different perspective. And her program was fantastic. I went to Israel twice 
um, to take part in some of Sherry's you know, workshops and her, you know, she didn't give them herself, but she organized them, um, which really helped me. The psychodrama came through Sherry. Mm, wow. People from her. Yeah. So you, you mentioned about being angry at God and you, you speak about that in the book as well, how you felt angry at God and how a rabbi came to you and he said to you that, I think you said David Hamelch was also, King David was also angry. He writes in the same verse how he's angry at God, but he's yet accepting it. Is it okay for a person to be angry at God? So I, I asked about that a lot because I felt kind of awful about it. Um, I think that many times when somebody... I mean, I think many of us feel angry at God at many times in our yeah. lives. Yeah, I think what it really is, many times it's not really anger, it's pain. I talk a lot about... I, in the book, but also more afterwards, because it took me longer than that one year to process. But when we are hurting very, very deeply and we're lashing out, it's really just pain. And for me, pain, the pain looked like anger because it was safer than sadness. I was afraid that if I fell into sadness, I wouldn't be able to climb out. Anger felt easier to do in a way. It gave me some of my, my oomph back. I was still a person. I wasn't destroyed. Um, if we can apply the concepts that God is good and then it's our soul journey, the anger dissipates. But somebody cannot come in from the outside and say, don't be angry or, you know, pull yourself together. So I think that when there is anger, we need to take it to the root. And most of the time I speak to people in the throes of early grief a lot. I get those calls, um, unfortunately, often. And I can see right past the, the very angry things people are saying to how badly they're hurting. Um, so it's not really anger at God. It's more of just a sense of terror and pain, deep, deep pain. Um, with time, as people start to tap into the resources of, you know, God. Why can't there be this anger that, you know, God is all capable and I'm his child. I mean, I'm sure people feel this way. I'm his child. And if God, why is God doing this to me? Like God is in charge. So why is he causing me so much pain and grief and suffering? There it is. So we have that. We have that with Moses and Moshe. When he got God and he said, why have you done harm to your people? And God answered, Ani Hashem, I am God. So it's not a one-two discussion. You're angry. Okay. Believe this and you won't be angry. It's a process. Yeah, you're right. For me, the, the, difficult part was anytime I would think God is good. And then I would think about the Holocaust. So right. I would right. get stuck or God is good, but, but Yossi suffered in the water. And I, when I looked at how he died, I know he suffered. So, or I would look at my babies. That was a tough one because they were so sweet and they were tiny and they hadn't done anything. And yet they're hurting. Hang on a second. My phone. Sure. Just popped up there. Um, so yeah, that, it's that, I think it, it's a process. It's very difficult to go through life raging. Uh, I did it for a year. It's draining. And the, 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 what ends up happening also is that it doesn't get better. Um, so eventually, if we're healthy, we come to a place where we don't want to live in fury. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that's crying out and saying, why is this happening? Or it's going to sound ridiculous, but it's not fair. Sure. Um, yes. Yeah, I did that. I was jealous, too. Um, people say it a lot. They say things like, I can't look at you know, someone who has what they don't have, but I know it now not to be like a, just a evil jealousy. It's pain. It is pain. And with time, as we begin to tap into our own soul powers, it does soften that rage. Mm -hmm. Wow. 
you know, I, I was reading the book and it just, like, it just took so much out of me. I felt so emotionally, I mean, it was so inspiring, but it was also emotionally draining. How did you write it? Like, how were you able to write it? Did it just deplete you? Or did you feel that this is something that you just needed to do? So I didn't. And at what stage did you write it? Like how, you know, did you write? Because it feels said, like it was like happening right now, right then. Yeah, you know? exactly. I never sat down and said, I'm writing a book. What happened was I started the night before the Leviathan. I wrote about it in the book. The night before the, the Yossi, we buried Yossi, I had this sudden fear, so common to bereaved parents, that Yossi is going to be forgotten. So I started to write down as many stories as I could remember about Yossi. I kept it up. And in the process during Shiva, I was writing down. And it's changed from memories of Yossi to what I was going through. I started to write down everything people said to me. And I journaled. And I had done it by the babies, too, because I had so many feelings and so much was going on. And I didn't know where to put it. And by the babies, I had also done it just from a medical standpoint I needed to have the records and I needed to remember who said what and when I was so young I'd never heard of mitochondrial disorders so I by the babies and again by Yossi I was journaling extensively and it turned from just information or memories and stories to everything that I was going through and after Yossi's first yard site when I started to speak people were asking for a book and I had journaled for really mostly the first year, a little bit after that. And then I kind of dropped it because I got busy with the talks. And it sat for a few years. And then I was hearing more and more people were asking, it's a 45-minute talk. It's good, but it doesn't give the whole picture. And also when you're giving a talk, the book goes to a level of depth and sadness that you just can't do. I mean, it'd scare everybody off. You know? So people kept asking for a book. And I realized I'd already written one. So I went back to my journal. And that's why the book is so real. I had journaled and I, what I did was I didn't write the book as much as I cut out a lot, pared it down and pared it down and culled from what I had written. But it's really my journal of that first year and my journal from the babies. And that's why it reads so like in the immediate. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Incredible. Um, there was another thing in there that, that struck me. You, you write about your husband is coming to Israel and he's on the plane and he he's flying to meet you there because you were there for Sukkot, the first Sukkot, because you can go back home. It was just too much to bear. And he's sitting down on the plane next to an Israeli secular Jew. And well, do you want to tell us the story a little bit? So what happened was my husband, he looks the rabbi. I mean, the long beard and books everywhere. All he has is books. So he comes onto the plane and he has also because he had a flight that he knew he would have to pray, he'd have to daven in, in the morning because the flight to Israel from LA is, is 15 hours. So the guy sitting next to him, the Israeli, said to him when he looked at his tefillin, he said, well, I hope you won't be, you know, doing all that here, you know? And so my husband said to him, well, would you like to... In the beginning, my husband just like smiled at him, but he, he kept... He kind of was engaging with my husband. So my husband offered to put the tefillin on him, which, you know, it's, there's so much power, even if somebody doesn't do it regularly, to doing that mitzvah that one time. And the Israeli guy just kind of lost it. And he started to tell my husband that he, he lost a son just this past year, early 20s in the army. And he was so angry and he kept telling my husband and he said things like, you religious people with all your children, you know, you have so many children, what do you know? And my husband, and this is, he's just so good at this. He's a good listener. You know, in our marriage, I would say that 99% of the noise is me. Uh, <laughs> husband knows how to listen and how to let the other person, he knows how to receive another human being. 
Um, and he gave that man that gift. And I could just picture it because I know how he is. And this guy, I mean, like, you, you know, you, you're Orthodox people with all your children. I mean, I know that I would just jump at that. Nachman just let him speak and speak and speak and speak. And then when he was done, uh, so he told him, he told him about Yossi and about the babies. And the guy was just like completely blown away. And for the rest of the flights, you know, he lost you. Yeah, he just let Nachman was learning. And then when it came time to put on Tefillin as the plane was, they were just getting ready for landing. And he said, yes, I would like to, you know, put on the Tefillin, please. So, you know, it, it, it struck me when I saw that, because is that, you know, he was putting on Tefillin because your husband had also lost a child. Like, what, what do you make out of that? Soul. Because it, it wasn't that simple. They, they spoke for a while about, he asked my husband, how do you bear it? What do you tell yourself to get through it? Um, I guess it's seeing somebody else going through such a tragedy and still believing that ignites within us that if he can do it, maybe I can also, which was kind of a feeling I think people get when you, when they read your book, like if you're able to still greet every day with a smile, then, and that's what you were looking for also for those examples of people who are able to withstand and continue, then maybe I can also, right? You know, I've learned something um, in speaking to people who are not religious um, and they say things like, you have so much courage to have faith, you know, and I, I've learned that it goes the other way. I don't know how somebody could live without it. I mean, I think if they don't believe in the soul continuing to exist, so then when somebody dies, you bury them in the ground and then it's all over, that has got to be the most devastating feeling in the world. I mean, what's the point then of any life, of our own lives too? Right. So the belief that the souls exist beyond this world, I am still Yossi's mom. I am a mom of him as a soul now, but I know that we're connected. And I know that my soul is going through a journey and there's a bigger picture. If I didn't have that, there'd be no point. So like this man on the plane, what he spoke with my husband, when they were talking about it, they were talking about what do you hang on to so you don't give up? It has to come down to something bigger than this life that's right in front of us. It has to come down to the eternity of the soul, which brings us to the soul is created by God. And God is everywhere and there's a bigger plan. And that enables us to take another step because we understand that it's much bigger than just this anger right now and this disappointment and this raw missing the person. So I think that people need that. I, I just don't see how anybody can continue without it. Absolutely. Um, another thing that struck me was, was when your husband came to Israel on that same trip um, you write about how the only thing that you had argued with in relation in your marriage was that he sometimes dressed slumpy. I think so many wives could relate to that. You know, the ruffled shirt, the, 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 the scuffed shoes. And for the entire almost a year, well, it was a year by then. Almost. You, didn't notice, you, you didn't notice any of that because you were so absorbed with your grief. And suddenly you notice that he also was wearing his shoes that were gruffed <laughs> or scuffed. And... And it bothered you, and yet uh, you came to a different level. You were happy that it bothered you and that you noticed it, but you also didn't say anything to him. Like, why didn't you take a normal pair of shoes? <laughs> why didn't you take a normal shirt? I, I didn't say it to him, but I announced it to the whole world right now. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, it kind of like made me feel, was, 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 was that, is that what it's all about? You know, still being aware of what's going on, yet not 
yet having the compassion for another person so that we don't say it. In other words, still noticing it and the fact that you noticed it, the fact that you were in this world and you could notice that your husband wasn't dressed the way that you would want him to be dressed, clean and neat and all that. And yet it didn't bother you because you had space for what he was going through or for what he was as a person. Well, the appreciation stepped in. And you know, I see that sometimes with my grandchildren. I mean, they'll, they'll do, especially when they come together. I have some in London and some in L.A. And they'll come together and they'll get creative and the house will take, you know, a hit. And it's like, you know, and their own moms will say, oh, they're making such a mess. So they're up late. But I just find it funny and beautiful. I mean, it's just delicious. It doesn't mean that I don't notice, you know, <clears throat> when things are not, you know, the way we like them to be. But I'm just so, I'm so grateful. And I think it was that with my husband. You know, I realized that he flew across a bigger the perspective, I guess. Like you still yeah. notice it, but you have that perspective of appreciation or compassion or space or whatever it is that you just allow another person to be who they are, or you allow that moment to be the beauty. You see the beauty in that moment rather than the deficiency of it. At that moment, I can't say that I never get annoyed by small things or, you know, <laughs> you don't become a whole nother person and function on a higher plane. The difference is when there's such a life-changing event and the work, it's really the work after it. It wasn't the moment that he died. It was the work that came later is that I know at least now what I'm working towards and I want my time in this world to count. So sometimes I will get caught up in something silly or I will get irritated or, you know, all the things that you never thought after such a big loss that would happen, but it's in a different way. It is. I am not the same person. I have such a capacity now, not only for gratitude, but for, for meaning. Wow. Wow. Um, in the beginning of the book, you write about the mourning period and you write about some really, I don't want to say horrible, but some very not, not generous, not compassionate remarks that people made. Do you want to tell us some things that people should avoid saying during Shiva or during the mourning period when they see somebody who is in grief? How, how would you like to be treated? So I think in all fairness, first of all, because I was in such a pity mode when I wrote the book and I didn't want to edit it later. I kept true to my journal. If I was writing it now, I would have included more, but I wanted it to reflect how I was then. A lot of people said the right things and did the right things and were tremendously respectful and kind. I was so busy feeling sorry for myself that I ignored a lot of it. I did write that people said nice things, but I no, you, you definitely write about the people who were so supportive and yeah. the friends who were there for you that were remarkable. You know, and I think yeah. that, yeah. that was During Shiv, I focused on the negative comments. I did. And <laughs> I kept it like that way because I was showing my journey, which is that I wasn't necessarily a nice person then. And I, I'm better but I think it's important for, for people to see that because exactly. I think it's That's important. That's why I kept it. Exactly. Yeah. Which was that it wasn't that everybody said or did the wrong thing. It was that I was zeroing in on it. And I felt that was important because I've worked through that and I'm not like that right now. And I felt people should know that. Don't be scared if you feel like you're becoming a horrible person. Um, but that said, also, I think that everybody needs different things. And even I needed different things, different days. So the best thing, and it's hard to do, is when you're trying to help somebody else, is it really has to be about the other person and take your cues from them. So if they want to talk aloud, if they need to be quiet, sit with it, even if it's very uncomfortable to sit with the quiet, if they change their minds, whatever it is, if you're really trying to help another person, it has to be from them. If they ask you to preach at them and tell you the names of holy people who can inspire them, then tell them. 
But if they don't ask, don't offer them, you know, lectures. That was that was very hurtful to me. And I write about it. The woman who gave the lecture, all I was doing was counting her children. You know, don't 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 lecture. Don't talk about your own things in front of them. I mean, I write about a lot of this, and it it really didn't come from, you know. A bad place necessarily, but maybe a little bit of lack of awareness of how to be helpful. Right. And I think also people sometimes are very, very eager. They really want so much to help and they don't know how. So they'll show up and they'll cry in the Shiva home, which some people actually find helpful. It, it shows validation. I know a lot of other people find it very irritating. You know, they don't right. want to see somebody who they barely know crying in their home. Uh, everybody's different. So that's the hard part. I think if you walk in with a humility and a respect for how big this is and an understanding that the other person may have needs that might be different than what you want to give. You know, mm-hmm. if somebody wants to pour out a cup of soda, but the person wants water, you know, so try to allow them to show you what they need. And if they don't need you to be helpful, then help by not being helpful. Just be a calm presence, stay for a bit and move away. You know, people call me all the time and I say, can you show up at this person at this house? Can you go to this person? I don't go unless I know that they want a person. You know, I'm not going to walk in and say, I lost five children. Let me tell you how to survive. I wouldn't have welcomed that. Sure. You know, they have to be ready. Not everybody wants to see someone. I'm might be their worst nightmare. <laughs> you mean it can happen more than once? You know, so right. you need to know what the other person wants. Right. Wow. Um, you write also that people ask you, after all the suffering, how do you continue? And you responded with truth. Yes. With the truth of knowing everything is from God and that souls never die. And what we do with this world greatly matters. Yeah. Um, this is what you wrote. Can you elaborate on this? And is this really the message that you want us to take from the book? It is. I mean, it's really that simple and also that difficult because right. we can learn the truths. And I think that is the first step. Some people, I was lucky. I I went to, you know, Chabad schools. I learned, I had the education. I knew where the answers are. Um, But these days it's, it's easy to access. You can find answers. You can find connections and, you know, from people, people who will talk to you if you're struggling spiritually or emotionally, you can find therapy, you can get the answers, but then you have to allow it in. Like I can say affirmations in a therapist's office about how I'm going to try to, not let my husband feel like he lost not only a son, but, but a wife. And that sounds really good in her office on her couch. But then when I'm home, I have to actually act that way. So the truths are there. We are souls in bodies. We are here for a job. Everything that happens to us is our way of doing the work that we're supposed to do in this world. God is everywhere. All these things are truths that are accessible knowledge-wise. The issue is, and the work is, and I'm still doing it all the time, is how do I make it real? I'm working on it. I don't have any magic formula, any quick transformation. Any disappointment that happens now or any fear, fear is really a big one. So any fear or anxiety where I feel like what's going to be or how am I going to manage or am I going to be okay? And I have to remind myself, God is in charge. I will use the tools that I have. God will run the world. God is always running the world and I will be okay. And yes, there was a Holocaust and yes, Yossi died and yes, the babies died, but God is good and I will be okay. Beautiful. Wow. Thank you so much, Tori Kreiman. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you would like to get her book, even if I'm not, it's an incredible book 
full of faith. Really, like I say, it's almost like a textbook on how to reach through your grief, through your challenges and find that glimmer of light. Thank you so much for shining your light. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for sharing your journey with all of us. And please continue shining your inspiration for others. It's really incredible to see. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us.